Our sermon today is taken from John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. This is the word of God. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Friends, let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your gifts, um, for creating us, for giving us life and breath and everything that is within our bones, for giving us our health, our families, Lord God, for continually sustaining us, though every day, Lord God, we sin against you. You have chosen us out of this world. You set us apart. You transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've called us as your own. You've adopted us as your children so that we might cry out to you, Abba, Father, and so that we might humble ourselves now and serve others because you first loved us, because you first served us. No longer do we call you, Lord God, merely our master, but also our friend. Father, help us now as we go into your word. Help us now as we go to these texts. Help us understand what you would have us understand from them and help us apply it to our lives. As we know, Lord God, that as your son ascended, he has willed that we have, uh, we would study his word together and we become a city upon a hill. Help us now do that by the spirit of God, by your grace. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in John's gospel, the gospel of John, especially now we are in the middle of the farewell discourse. This is chapter 14 and 17, with 17 really being a prayer for Jesus' disciples. And the farewell discourse as we've covered for the last few weeks is talking about how Jesus is preparing his disciples as he's about to go away. Jesus is about to get on the cross. He's about to resurrect and ascend. He was already betrayed by Judas, as we saw in chapter 13. And now Jesus is preparing his disciples, and therefore by extension us, what ought they to expect? Now that he's about to go away, what should they expect given his departure? How would the world also know who are his true disciples? The world used to know that um, these 12 were his disciples because he was actually physically present with them. But now that he's going away, how would the world know who are his true disciples? And what should the disciples of God actually expect? And so Jesus preparing them. Here are the things that I want you to know. Here are the final things I'm going to say to you to prepare you for what's to come. And it's sobering to see all these things, especially as we come to our text this week. But remember what we've already covered throughout in the farewell discourse. Jesus already said that the mark of the true disciples would be the descending of the Holy Spirit. And that will be tangible in the love that we have for one another, the way we forgive one another, the patience that we would have for one another. 
and of course the obedience that we have for the revealed will of God as we are grafted in into the vines of Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. And the implications of those things, as we're going to see in this week's text, it's not more accolades for us, not more praises, not more worldly acclaim, but rather the opposite. Rather, in submitting ourselves to the true vine and being organically engrafted into Christ and, and, and obeying Him from the inside out. We're actually not expecting more praises from the world, but rather a kind of hatred from the world. So that you would actually feel a theological loneliness, almost like an identity crisis, as you're facing this world in obedience unto God. And this text is telling us, why should we expect any difference if Jesus experienced the same? And how should we then handle that kind of hatred as as, as we faithfully obey Him? And as the world receives us in these ways, how do we handle that kind of rejection, that kind of hatred, in this world. So three points I want to point out from this text this morning. First, that you will be hated. Second, why the world would hate us, why the world would would, would hate Christians, followers of Christ. And three, how to handle that hatred from the world. So first, that the world will hate you. Second, why the world might hate us. And third, how to handle that hatred from the world. All right, let's go. First then, the world will hate you. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A couple of things that we need to make clear here. The world in the Gospel of John is not merely in reference to God's creation. It's not merely in reference to the goodness of creation, the fact that God created all things and the world is His. Rather, the world in John's Gospel refers to the sinful rebelliousness of humankind, sinners against God. The world in John's Gospel, in other words, refers to the kingdom of darkness that is still bent on hating God. So Jesus is saying here, if you've become a Christian, if you have been chosen out of the world, the world will hate you. This is a point of certainty. This is not something in reference to merely first century Christians, not particular kinds of Christians, but rather a mark of you being a true Christian, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, is that you would actually face this real tension with the world because you're not of it. Jesus Christ has called you out of the world, and in doing so, he's fulfilling the promises of God, Genesis 3.15. Remember what? God said to Adam and Eve, the moment they had fallen, they have eaten of the tree, they had listened to the serpent. What did God say? I would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In other words, humankind had fallen into a kingdom of the dark. Humankind had fallen, they have sinned against God, they are now against Him. And God's promise of redemption involves fundamentally removing a particular uh, elect group of, of fallen humanity, transferring them to the kingdom of light and saying, I will set you both apart. No longer will there be an alliance, therefore, between you and the kingdom of this world. There will be a fundamental, what Kyber called an antithesis, an enmity, an opposition between you and the world. And this is not a mere ambivalence that the world will have against you. The, the wording that Jesus is choosing is stark. The world hates you. The world will hate us. Before we get carried away, this is not in a kind of masochistic kind of way, right? The world isn't hating you because you are being obnoxious. 
or for you being annoying, or for you being abrasive, right? The world needs to hate you because you're fundamentally for Christ. There's a fundamental enmity and opposition and antithesis between you and the world because you've been chosen out of the world. You're now in the world, but you're no longer from the world. God's redemption sets you fundamentally apart. So you should expect it. And this posits a few serious questions for us because if hatred from the world and opposition from the world is something that you could expect as Christians, then it poses some practical questions for us. Do we feel at home in this world? Do we feel any enmity with this world? And if you don't, why not? If you don't, why not? Do you feel a a friendship with the world that you you sense to yourself? You might call yourself a Christian. You might say that you go to church or you are a follower of Christ. But if you don't feel any enmity with the world, perhaps there are some questions that you ought to ask yourself. Have you been hiding who you are? Are you so fearful of the world that you hide your identity in Christ that when you come away from Sunday and you go back to your workplaces, you go back to your families, you don't, have, you don't feel any inclination, or in fact you resist the inclination to obey Christ because you're, you're fearful of what the world might say to you. You see... Friends, when you become a Christian, Christianity, Christian discipleship, your redemption, your conversion, it is not simply a, a, moral ref, a moral improvement of who you are in light of the world's standards, friends. It is a fundamental recreating of who you are from the inside out, such that when you're engrafted into Christ, you can't help it, but exude praise for Him and love for Him and, and, and delight in Him. You know, Kevin Van Hooser, who's a, a seminary professor at um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, is a small seminary in um, the suburbs of Chicago of about a few hundred students. Um, he told me a story uh, about him being offered a particular job in a very prestigious Ivy League divinity school. I won't name the school because it might shed bad light. And, and, and this happened in the background in email exchanges and phone calls and so forth, but he was called... From his, you know, from Trinity, which is a relatively small school in, in, in suburban Chicago, to this very prestigious Ivy League Divinity University, Divinity School within a university, and of course, as offers like this come, he was intrigued. He, he would ask a few questions to this particular professor who called him, say, "Come to 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 take a, take up this professorship. You have a lot of students. You have amazing impact, and it's a prestigious university. Who doesn't want that?" And it was interesting to me because as we had this conversation, Van Hooser said that he had to decline the offer. And his reasons were very striking. His reasons were not, they weren't offering me enough salary or they weren't offering me the things that I wanted to, to, to get from this kind of job. But rather, it wasn't about academic freedom or prestige or, or the money or the salary. Rather, he said, when they offered me this, I asked them a few questions. Am I able in class to say that I believe in the authority of Scripture? Am I allowed to say that? Can I lecture that way? No, I mean, that, that's kind of, you could say that as an option, but don't, don't do that dogmatically. Can I, can I say in, in class about, about this, about the sinfulness of humanity, about this and gender norms, and, and, and can I do that? And a guy, ah, definitely not that, definitely not that. It was just uneasy with what Van Hooser was, was able to say or not to say. And he says, so I, I, I'm not going to take this job. Why? You can't compete 
with Trinity because here in this small divinity school, I get to be myself. You hear that? I get to be myself. In other words, there is something fundamentally different about Christians that, that from the deep within, the, the, the deep recesses of your heart, you can't help it but talk about Christ. You know, when you, when you get converted, when you, when you become a true follower of Christ, suddenly the laws of God, the revealed will of God, doesn't become a hindrance to you or a yoke upon you that's heavy or burdensome, but rather you find that they are really joyous things to do. And then you go back to the things that you used to do before you're Christian, and then you realize, I don't taste the same things anymore. I just can't delight in the same things anymore. You know, on a Friday night, I'd rather be at home and read my books. You know, I, it's striking to me as Tazar was announcing vacation Bible school. To some, maybe that's a contradiction. Vacation and Bible. Okay, wait. Two different things. When I go to vacation, I go away from my Bible. But when you're Christians, there's something that resonates there before you. you. You go to vacation, and the one thing that you might want to read is catch up with your scripture reading. The one thing you might want to read is catching up on your, the best theological devotional books. There's something fundamentally different about who you are, such that when you go, even to your old friends, to your careers, you don't see those careers the same way. The things that your old friends talk about, you suddenly notice things. Why would I talk that way? You go back to your Facebook comments from years ago, and then you realize, I talked that way? What was I thinking? See, Christianity is not simply a moral improvement upon your life. It is a deep, decisive transformation of your nature. You will simply not delight in the same things anymore, and therefore, that would make the world uncomfortable. That would make the world look at you as if you're a kind of alien because you're fundamentally different from the world. So get ready. And if you're not facing that, that opposition, are you hiding who you are? Why? Are you afraid of this world? Why? Or you're completely at home with this world. You have no problems getting along with this world. You're, you're, if you're friends with the sinful order of this world, and then you don't care. You come to church, it doesn't phase you at all. You come out of church, you're no different. You face no enmity at home, no enmity at workplace, no enmity in your social life, nothing. So you have to ask your question, why is that? So that's the first point, you will face opposition. But secondly, why then? Why would the world hate you? There are three sub-points under the second point. And, and the world hates us, I think this text teaches us, hates Christians, for three primary reasons. And the first one is primary, and as the world hates Jesus first, notice in, in the end of verse 19 it says, um, sorry, in the end of verse 18 it says, the world hates me before it hated you. And in 21, these things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus' name, because they do not know him who sent me. And in 23, whoever hates me hates my father also, if I had not done um, among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. So, not only is Jesus saying, expect some persecution. It might not be physical persecution, but expect some kind of opposition from the world. Might it be psychological, verbal, or physical? But he's subordinating the sufferings that Christian would face with the suffering that Jesus is facing. In other words, the world hates us fundamentally because they've hated Jesus first. 
and because we've lined ourselves up with Jesus, therefore, by extension, the world hates us by association. The world hates us because it first hates Jesus. And you might think to yourself, why in the world would, would, would people hate Jesus? And there's that famous saying about Gandhi, I don't like your Christians, but I like your Christ. And when I hear that, I figure that Gandhi probably never read the Gospels. And, you know, people are wondering, people have this, this, this picture of Christ as this forlorn, winsome, nice guy with a beautiful beard, and he's just walking around hugging people. That's not the picture that we get in the Gospels. Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. He claimed that. Jesus rebuked all the religious authorities. Jesus rebuked all the Roman authorities. Both religious supremacy and political supremacy were against him. Secular power, Gentile power was against him. And traditional moralism was against him. He was not for any earthly power. He was for his own kingdom. And he said crazy, absurd, divine things like, Before Abraham was, I am. John 8.51 before Abraham was, in other words, before Abraham, the Israelite patriarch was, thousands of years ago, Christ existed. And off the cuff, he would say things like, you know, I saw Satan fall down from heaven. Like, where did that come from? Jesus, in other words, was, was claiming and performing things that attested to his divine authority. See, he wasn't just simply telling us a way of life. He wasn't just telling us, I am an example or a good teacher for you. He's rather saying, He is the way. Follow me. Blessed are you if you're persecuted for my sake. See, if Iartazer came up before you and said, follow me, and if people persecute you for my sake, you would rightly say, this is a cult, I'm out of here. You see, Jesus claimed that kind of authority. He was unfazed by the world. He broke tons of social norms. He healed people on the Sabbath day. He, he was... He was breaking all kinds of boundaries. It's no surprise that the world would hate him. And not only that, I think, he gives a specific reason here. Look again at verse 21. He says, They do these things to you on account of my name, because you do not know him who sent me. And then 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And here I think Jesus is giving a very specific reason of why it is that people might be not just uncomfortable, but why he might receive a kind of hatred. He's saying that his presence, his, his being, his actions, his words, his works, they reveal people's darkness. And what Jesus is saying here comports with what we saw in John's gospel elsewhere so far, right? The darkness does not want to come into the light. The darkness refuses the light resists it, but cannot overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and therefore what? Exposes it. Exposes their guilt. See, when it says here, they would not have had guilt, but now that they have seen me, they're guilty. It, it can't mean, that, you know, guilt is both objective and subjective, right? Subjectively, you might feel feelings of guilt. And it keeps you up at night. You're thinking about your sin. Like, why did I do that? That's a subjective feeling of guilt. But objectively... It doesn't matter whether or not you feel the guilt. A murderer comes before the judge, and the murderer says, I don't feel guilty for murdering that man. I killed Joe. I'm not guilty for it. I don't feel it. And the judge says, overruled. I don't care. It doesn't matter what you feel. You've broken the law. You're objectively guilty. 
But what I think Jesus is saying here is, his works, his presence, his divinity, his light shining in the dark, has revealed a consciousness and awareness, a deep awareness of their own sin. The darkness had been exposed. They now know they can't hide it anymore. And Jesus is specifically referring here to the religious moral powers and authorities, those who identified with their good works, those who think that they're better than other people. And Jesus comes to them and, 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 and declares these things and does these works and exposes who they are. They can no longer hide behind their religiosity, you see. Jesus shows up and they can't help it but say, I've been exposed. I can't hide behind my good works anymore. I can't hide as if I'm better than the prostitute or the tax collector. I've been exposed. This happens to us all the time. If you identify yourself with your beauty, for example, and someone else walks into this room with more Instagram followers than you, better, what, what do you think are better looks than you? You feel exposed. Suddenly you feel absolutely self-conscious. Someone better looking has walked in. You put your identity in your academic pedigree, right? I walk in, in these academic conferences and I feel incredibly self-conscious because no matter what, I'm just a junior. And a senior scholar walks in, four books under his belt, and I feel, okay, I'm inferior here. I've been exposed. The, one of the best examples of this from any book that I've ever read, I think, is still in R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God. It's in the 1980s. It's a classic book. If you haven't read it, please do read it. Sproul there talks about, I think, a universal experience of being that kid in math class, and there's an overachiever in class. Remember that person who's always sitting in the front row asking all the first questions? If the teacher forgot to check your homework, he or she would remind the teacher, you forgot your homework. And you're always trying to throw rocks at them, right? And you're like, why are you reminding the teacher? It's a good thing that this person has forgotten, you know, the teacher has forgotten to check our homework, okay? Why? Why are we so annoyed, in other words? You might, okay, so you might think Jesus was a perfectly good person we would love perfectly good people. We don't. We don't. Someone who is morally superior to you walks into this room, you're instantly self-conscious about your own inferiority. You hate the student who's reminding the teacher for the homework. You see, when sinners come in the presence of holiness, they don't go to it. They run away. What did I many of do? God comes in the cool of the wind, right? Walking in the garden. Adam and Eve didn't shout out, God, here I am. I have sinned. Let me confess. No, they hide. They clothe themselves. They say, turn away from me. Jesus was the perfectly good person and he walked on earth. And what happened? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. No. God in the hands of, an angry, of angry sinners. He crucified him. And by association, those who want to follow his will, of course, why should we expect anything different? But not only do we see that we're hated because of Jesus, that's the first sub-point. The two other sub-points underneath that is we have a different word, we speak differently from the world, we have a different worldview, we have a different view of things from the world. But not only that, we also have a different orientation, we have a different love from the world. So those are the, the latter two subpoints. So the world hates us for Christ's sake, but also because we speak a different word, we have a different love. Notice in the last half of verse 20, it says, 
if they kept my word, they would also keep yours. You're speaking a different logos to people. You're, you're speaking a different word. You have a different fundamental worldview that subverts the world's worldview. You have a different view of things. You have a different narrative by which you see life. The answers to the big questions, you have different answers to them. Why are we here? Where are we going? What are the norms? You know, do we, the fact that we even believe in a right and wrong, right, puts us in opposition against the world. But not only that, it says there um, in verse 19, if you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. In other words, part of why it is that the world hates us is because we have a different love from the world. We have a different love from the world. And this comes out in a myriad of ways. You have, you're fundamentally allying yourself to a different lord, a different master. And if that's the case, you're no longer allies with the world in important and significant manners. And this comes out in our culture in so many different ways. Let me bring this home to us in, in, in a couple of examples. Um, you see, I, I think this is something that we, we would encounter so often, especially in an Asian culture. Let me tell you a little bit about what happened to me when I first became a Christian, all right? When I first became a Christian, and I'm suddenly realizing all these things, that enmity with the world is, is friendship with God, and friendship with God means enmity with the world. You can't choose both. You have to be one or the other. Is I'm realizing that I can't do the same old things that I used to do, and I can't be around the same people that I used to, not because I think I was any better, but because I knew my own heart, and I'd be lured away, and I just couldn't, I had a different delight. God had so transformed me that I had to move away from secularism in an important distinct way. So I wasn't doing the same things on Friday nights anymore. I had to move away from all of that. I had a different worldview. I had a different alliance from them. And then I would tell my parents that, who are very traditional, very moral, very Chinese, in other words, right? And of course, they were very happy. I would tell them, Mom, Dad, I got to study on Friday. I, I, I became a Christian when I was in high school. I got to study on Friday. I, I, this is important. I'm not going to go out and I'm going to see the same kind of people anymore. My mom and dad were really proud of me. They're like, fantastic. Yes, you are a very good boy. Very, very happy for you. We will find you a good career. We will find you a good... Anyway, all those sort of things, right? So they thought I had moved away from the secularism to the camp of moral traditionalism. You see? They thought I'd moved away from that. And then I started studying and they were, re they were seeing me read books like The Holiness of God by Sproul. And then you want to freak out your Asian parents? You tell them you want to go to seminary. They're like, okay, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. We thought you were going to focus on your business life now. You want to move away from alcohol and all, all that kind of lifestyle, right? You want to move away from that. You want to, okay, we have a business prepared for you. You want to go to that. You'll be an obedient, good child. You want to freak them out? Tell them, I'm not allied to you either. I'm not for this family. In fact, my alliance, my fundamental love is neither for my secular friends nor for my traditional parents. My fundamental love is for Christ and his family. And then they start to say things like, okay, you're taking this religion thing too far. You want to freak them out even more, tell them you want to marry someone who's non-Chinese, okay? But I don't want to get into that. Um, you see, you are fundamentally 
not for secularism and you're fundamentally not for traditional morality. You're so opposed to both, you will feel a theological identity crisis. You will feel it. If you haven't feel that, felt it yet, you will. I promise you, especially in Jakarta. You will. And Jakarans, what are you afraid of? Is God calling you away from your family's business? I'm not saying that you shouldn't, by the way. That might be God's calling for you. But notice you're asking a different question. You're not fundamentally asking, Lord, you know, how do I follow my dad best? No, you're asking primarily, Lord, what do you want? What do you want? Because you're first in my life. You don't only determine my worldview, you determine my heart's desires. You determine my primary alliances, my loves. It doesn't matter what my family might say to me. It doesn't matter what my, my career might say to me. Lord, you are first in my life. Let my father, let my career, let my friends do otherwise. I don't care. Let me do this. I'm going to follow you. This is my fundamental heart orientation. I'm not going to do this perfectly. I'm not going to do this all as well. I'm not going to be able to do this all the time. But Lord, you have fundamentally reoriented my nature. Help me, Lord God, do what pleases you. It doesn't matter what the world's alliance is saying. And this came home to me um, as well. And that hits us home, doesn't it? But an example, you see, you have to do this in such a way where you're both confident and humble. Most of the times, if you're confident and you're confrontational, therefore you're not humble. You're abrasive. And most of the time, if you're humble, you're not confrontational. You're just, you're just keeping to yourself. But you see, Jesus' commands here, this opposition to the world, but at the same time, a humility for the world, they go together. Right? So when your parents say things to you like, so this is what Christianity does to you, huh? It tells you to disobey your parents. And then you have to wrestle with those questions. How do you, how do you confront that? And say that your family of God is more important than the family that of your earthly identity. How do you confront that with humility? How do you do that? And that's the kind of poise that we got to aim for. Um, another example of this. Let me just, again, bring this home to us. The kind of what I think we need to emulate and, and the kind of example that we need. Tim Keller... Last year, I don't know if you heard about the story, it was very publicized, widely all over the place. Keller was about to, this is because it's public, I can name all the institutions involved. Um, in Princeton Theological Seminary, every year for about the past decade, they moved it now because of what happened with Keller. Last year, they wanted to award him what was called the Kuiper Award, named after Abraham Kuiper. And this award was given to, quote unquote, theologians from the public square who are, who are facing the public square with the Calvinistic tradition. And they wanted to award this to Tim Keller last year. And this award came with it, an annual lecture, so he had to lecture, and also a pretty hefty sum of money. But a few weeks before the conference, Keller was uh, protested by a lot of students at Princeton. There were news articles about it. Uh, students were protesting, particularly because of his worldview, his stance on homosexuality, traditional gender norms. And so when they protested against him, the seminary did what is basically, I think, an academic cardinal sin. They changed their minds. They rescinded the award. They were no longer going to give the award to Keller. And you can read about this. I think the Washington Post and New York Times wrote about it. Now, at this point, Keller, I think, had two options, right? He either 
could say, you could just throw fuel to the fire and say, okay, you're going to face me with opposition. I'm going to come back as hard against you. I'm going to talk about how Princeton is against academic freedom. Princeton is discriminatory. Princeton is hip- hypocritical. What, I'm, I'm going to refuse even to step on campus. What did Keller do? I'm going to still give the lecture. You don't have to give me the award. I'll be there just as scheduled. Because of the publicity, and by the way, friends, in academic lectures, normally, like at most, you would get a crowd of 60 to 100 people. This room, this auditorium was packed. At least 1,000 people were there. There was even an overhead screen uh, in the second floor so that people could see uh, those who came coming late. Right? It was just absolutely packed because of all the publicity that he got. And Keller spoke for an hour and 15 minutes just about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, I witnessed him. He came after that. You normally had a wine reception. And Keller came to the banquet hall. And he stood there for about two to three hours until about 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. He was the last person to leave that room because there was a line of protesters wanting to talk to him one-on-one. Not just fans, but protesters. One-on-one. To speak with him. To criticize him. To braid him. He stood there and listened to every single one until there was nobody else there. I, was, I know this because I was fanboying. I was kind of in the background just witnessing it. I was probably like the third to, to leave because I was just trying to watch everything and take it all in. But, but that's when I noticed. Here, here is a man who is both confrontational. His lecture was absolutely unabashed, reformed, and, and telling the gospel as it is. We're sinners in need of grace. But uh, there was no... I had a newfound respect for it, and there was no turning back from that. And yet, he had the humility to listen to every single person in that room till late at night. His exhausting emotional work, what is it that could give us the power to be both confrontational and humble at the same time? And that leads me to a third point. How to handle like a traitor. Where do we get the power from? How do we get to do that? And I think the key here, friends, is in verse 20 again. It's just the one place in this whole um, passage where Jesus actually says, remember the word that I said to you. In other words, listen to this. That's a key indicator that that's where you ought to focus on. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Okay? A few things to point out there. Where do we get the resources to be both confrontational and humble at the same time? Well, a servant is not greater than his master. What does that mean? First, don't expect anything different if Jesus was crucified on the cross for being obedient to God. Don't expect anything different. Trust in your master. If you're jealous of the world, if you're seeking worldly acclaim through becoming a Christian, you've chosen the wrong faith. Don't be surprised then when things go against you. Don't be envious with the world. In other words, don't be, don't be bitter about the fact that you're still going to be treated the way your master is. So trust your master. But I think deeper than that is the word servant in itself. The servant is not greater than his master. It is interesting that Jesus says this because look up to verse 15. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends so i think what jesus is saying there is not merely to remember that the servant is not greater than his master 
But to also remember that you were once servants, but now you are friends of Christ. And the word servant there is the word doulos in Greek, and it's stronger than merely servant. It's not just like maid or, or something like that, or even, you know, or a formal kind of a butler, but rather the word, the word could easily be translated, as older translations do, slaves. You were slaves. And friends, in the ancient world, slaves were slaves. A large part of the reason why they were slaves was not because of ethnicity or race, as it is in modern slavery, but rather oftentimes you were slaves because you were indebted to a master and you couldn't pay off your debts. Rather, uh, rather than paying off your debts with a sum of money, you would pay it off with free labor as a slave. And so if you owed your master a lot of money and you couldn't pay it off, you would end up becoming a slave for the master. You see what Jesus is saying? If you were once a slave and now you're a friend, what is Jesus saying? Your debt that was indebted to me, it's gone. You were once a slave. You owed everything because of your sin. But now, it's absolutely gone. And every time slave language is used by Jesus in the Gospels, almost every time, I think, in Matthew 18, Luke 17, and now here in John 15, it's always in the context of forgiveness and an erasure of debt. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about a parable. I'm sure you know about this. There was a master with two servants, two slaves. Both of these slaves... Um, owed something to, to either one another or the master. And the first slave came up to the master and he owed him an enormous sum of money. An enormous sum of money. Something like a lifetime's worth. And, the, and he came to the master and the master said, pay back what you owe me. And the servant fell down on his feet. He fell down on his feet and says, have mercy on me and I will pay you back. And the master had mercy on him and said, your debt's gone. I'm not going to count it against you. Go on your way. And so the servant went on his way, and then a second servant came to this first servant who had just been forgiven, and the servant owed him something equivalent to like a hundred bucks, so not insubstantial, but way less than what the first servant owed the, the master. And, wh and what did that first servant do? He choked him and said, pay back what you owe me or else. And then that first servant threw the second servant out to debtor's prison. And other servants saw this and were enraged and recalled the first servant to his master. And the servant penalized him. I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you also have mercy on those who owed you? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's the key, friends. How do we both become humble and confrontational at the same time? Know that you were once, first of all, a part of the world. If you were chosen out of the world, you were once identified with the world. You were once slaves together with the world, slaves to sin. But you have been freed by Christ. And when you forgive someone, friends, the debt doesn't just magically get erased. Someone else had to pay. See, how do you become both confrontational and humble? You identify with the world because you can't stay angry at someone unless you believe that you're better than them in some way. You identify yourself with the world and then realize and fix your eyes, not upon yourself, realizing you're no better from the world, but rather on the master who became a slave for you. He had paid all your debt. Fix your eyes on the master who became a servant, 
a servant until the point of death, obeyed on your behalf, paid your price, so now we can go into the world testifying to who he is in both humility, confidence, and fearlessness against the world's hatred. Ground yourselves in that. Be humble and confrontational at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we are challenged by who you are. You showed yourself to be holy and we can't stand to bear the side of holiness because holiness exposes us. But Father, instead of destroying us, you've clothed us with your own righteousness that we too might enter into the realm of the holy. We who were at first not pure, born in iniquity, became pure. We who were indebted to you, a debt that we cannot pay off, became free of that debt. So Father, as we now are confronted by the world, help us walk in humility, but with confidence at the same time, because we've been accepted, and therefore we can be bold, but accepted not out of our own merit, so we ought to be humble because of the merits of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let us rise as we sing this hymn together.